Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm, sunny morning here in the capital is Thomas Hainsworth. Thomas is the executive director of A.W. Hainsworth, a family-run business specialising in the design, innovation and manufacture of woven textiles. Uh, Tom, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, yeah, I look forward to having our chat. Yes, likewise, Tom, certainly is a lovely day for it. And of course, we record this podcast on the morning of July the 19th, 2021, meaning that in England, all COVID restrictions have, of course, just been lifted. But I think it's safe to say the pandemic itself is far from over. And if we address that elephant in the room to start on the show today... Going way back to that sort of first lockdown being called in March of 2020, by and large, over this period of time, how has the pandemic, do you think, affected you and affected your business? Well, I I think we've been fairly fortunate uh, overall. I mean, we are very much a global uh, trading company, so we work all in different parts of the world. Um, So, you know, we've seen bounce back in, in different areas at different speeds, and that has helped us, uh, you know, develop a, or maintain a very strong business uh, in this year. I think at the start of the pandemic, I think like most businesses, you know, we were pretty scared. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen to the company. Um, the, the furlough scheme that the government introduced was was fantastic. You know, we obviously had uh, a complete lockdown, so. Um, the vast majority of our production was was closed. Um, we did maintain part of it going because we supplied emergency services. Um, so that was maintained and we kept people employed, um, a small team employed uh, doing that. Um, and it allowed us then to gradually plan over the, over the year. So it um, hasn't been easy. Um, but you know our staff have been very well committed to maintaining um, maintaining employment in, for for the business and maintaining the skills that we have, uh, and uh, we've come out the other end in a good place. That's really encouraging to uh, to hear that things are going well on that side of things. And now that there is, of course, thanks to the Freedom Day, no more sort of restrictions on everyday operation. Um, is it kind of a moment where you'll be returning to things almost full pelt, or is there a little bit more sort of caution about that now? No, I think I think we're right to be cautious. Um, you know, we've learned a lot over the last year. Um, you know, we we aren't returning uh, fully to be all in the office. A lot of people are still working from home, and we rotate the teams uh, in that can work from home. Obviously, we're in manufacturing business at heart so you know the manufacturing team need to be in um we do have a lot more social distancing rules in in work so the teams are spread out you know our central canteen is now uh, individual canteens in in different parts of, of the factory um 
and um, you know, I think it's it, it's working. Um, I think it's a recognition that actually a lot of people like to work in different ways. So some people working from home it suited really well. You know, they've been able to get on and and crack on with the work and and get it done uh, very effectively. And the outcomes that they're delivering for us is, are fantastic. Um, there's other people that it hasn't suited so well and prefer to be in work um, next to their colleagues or close to their colleagues and have that bit of extra banter that you only get when you're actually in a workplace. So mm. it forces the courses. It's uh, trying to fit it in um, to suit the individual as much as suit the, the business need. Yes, exactly. It isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? The flexible working, despite the benefits that we've seen from that. And I think what is quite clear is that when it comes to the office side of businesses, it's going to be that sort of hybridised working approach that perhaps is going to be the status quo going forward, even when sort of COVID itself is no longer an immediate and present danger should that day ever come. I think our working practices are ultimately going to be changed forever as a result of all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an opportunity. Um, you know, as I said earlier in the podcast, that we are you know a global business, so we're trading uh, everywhere in the world, or forty-two countries, I think, last year. Um, and our biggest uh, export business actually goes into China, but also you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, and you know the US. Uh, and I think the pandemic has brought about opportunities to actually. Conduct that business without the level of travel that uh, we historically used to have to do, uh, and that's uh, that's a good thing. Um, so you know we can be on a, a Teams meeting um, in the you know in the uh, Australia first thing in the morning or or uh, last thing at night, and um, America and Europe all in the same day. So if you want to get a message out, you can get it out globally a lot mm-hmm. easier. Uh, than we than we did before, and I think people have just got used to that type of uh, arrangement. Yeah, I think it's a change in leadership, isn't it? Doing everything from a distance, even with some members of your team working in the UK. But I suppose being accustomed to working globally and having those sorts of meetings, I mean, it's sort of quite easy to then sort of adapt to the challenges of sort of working and leading from afar. I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think you know we're lucky that these these relationships that we have around the world, you know, they've been built up over generations. So we've, you know, we've traded, for example, with the Hudson Bay Company, you know, for, for many generations uh, and in Canada. And they, um, and so their relationship exists. We know what we do. We know them uh, and we can build that uh, and we still maintain that in teams. But when you're starting a relationship, I think, you know, nothing, nothing beats face-to-face um, and a handshake and looking in someone's eyes and, and, spending a bit of time with them uh, and for that you need to travel mm. so um, building on existing partnerships the pandemic has worked okay forging new ones um, you know we're still learning whether that will work uh, in terms of how does it work in, in terms of being you know, you need to see the bones of the place and get a feel for the person that you're working with uh, and that for that you need to travel Yes, exactly. And it may take some time for that side of things to uh, to come back for sure. So something certainly to keep an eye on over the coming months and indeed perhaps years. Um, and then reflecting on sort of the pandemic as a whole, I suppose that 
Churchill once said, didn't he, never waste a good crisis. And in that kind of sense, we can take an awful lot of learnings away from this pandemic period. We've seen it accelerate a digital revolution. We've seen people embracing new different ways of working, learning more about their team and themselves. Are there any sort of key lessons, Tom, that you think that maybe you've taken away from this last 16 or so months yourself? Well, I think it's the ability for a business to adapt and change. I think Darwin's theory of evolution is not the strongest species that to survive. It's the one that's most capable of change. And what this pandemic has created is the need for, for rapid change, rapid change in terms of how we deal globally with our customers, and doing a lot, using a lot more technology, change in terms of our retail partners, how they trade, moving a lot of it to being online and how do we align with those those customers and those partners and really change for the individual, making sure that as a team we really trust our our staff and our individuals and allow them to develop and and be as effective as they possibly can be uh, and uh, change and move on in terms of working in different ways um, and um, being very much empowered to be working from home. Even though we've maybe been working apart during this sort of last 16 months, I think that the resilience that we've had to show as industries sort of get through this and the closer relationships that we've formed between our colleagues and our leaders, as it were, have really made businesses stronger in some cases, more resilient. Is that something you'd say that applies to A.W. Haynesworth as well, that you've come out of this a lot stronger than before? I think we, I think we are coming out of it stronger than before. You know, I think when you go through a crisis, you go through it with your colleagues and everyone experiences uh, in the same way. So it's an experience shared, which means that those relationships are stronger. And fundamentally, um, you know, businesses are built on, on trust between you, your colleagues, your suppliers and your customers uh, and, you know, the people that buy your, your brand. Um, and that having that experience, you know, improves that. And I think looking at this sort of time of economic hardship we find ourselves in, if we look at similar times in history, albeit we've not seen very many pandemics quite like this, it always seems to be the case that new businesses are sort of born out of times of economic difficulty. And there are many new businesses, of course, starting to go to market now that we've seen. Um, With that in mind, Tom, as a successful businessman yourself, just for those sort of younger budding entrepreneurs that may be tuning into this podcast today, um, what sort of words of advice would you have to give to those people to get them to sort of look at the opportunities out there and embark on the road to success? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of it's down to courage. You know, we're in a different world than we were. I mean, when I when I started, or when my father started, you know, you had a, a job for life. It was a career for life. Nowadays, um, you're probably going to have multiple careers and multiple styles of jobs. So it's really understanding, you know, um, what do you want to do, what do you enjoy doing and have the courage to go out and, and grab your dream and, and do it and have a go um, and don't worry about you know about failure just work, just make sure you take the learning I, I think, think um, yeah. Disney wasn't it, he had to go to I don't know 300 banks before someone funded his uh, his operation uh, and the success that he made from that 
that he wasn't clear. He just had a belief in what he did was doing, and he didn't have a fear of failure and kept going. So um, I think for young entrepreneurs, it's courage, keep going, and don't worry if don't, at first you don't succeed. I do think you're very, very right in that embrace failure and learn from it as well because I think in some ways we can be afraid of failure and that sort of stops us from taking risk and doing things and being brave and I think in some ways you almost have to have that experience of failing to learn from that and almost better yourself and that goes for employees and business leaders as a whole doesn't it? I think that goes for everything in life really Mm. you know um Unless you've failed, you're not you, you know you're not going to learn. So um, I think it's making sure that you know yeah, have a go, fail quickly and learn quickly, and have another go. <laughs> I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, Tom. And uh, just because I am conscious that we are starting to run short of time on today's show, um, I would like to talk about the future just before we do wrap things up. Um, of course, we know that. Restrictions in England have now been lifted. Um, that may well be a temporary measure, depending on how things transpire from here. Of course, there's still a little bit of uncertainty there. Um, but as we sort of look ahead in terms of your business, what are your priorities going to be over the next 12 months? And where are you hoping for yourselves to be by this time in 2022 as we hopefully can leave the COVID restrictions behind? Well, in our business, we're very lucky. We're in lots of different markets and lots of different parts of the world. Uh, and, you know, there are certain markets which are performing exceptionally well and are very strong. And um, what drives our business is leading in each of those markets and driving the best innovation in those markets. So, again, it's about continually innovating um, continually learning and continually improving. Um, I think over the next 18 months, I see that um, in a way, the pandemic has helped us have more ambition in our ability to do that. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in continuing to innovate and to adapt to the challenges that the pandemic and indeed other global conditions may throw towards you, Tom. And thank you again for joining us on the uh, the programme today as well. It's been a real eye-opener having you join us on the show. And um, I think as well, once we get more of an idea as to how things are starting to go in the post-pandemic world, I'd quite enjoy welcoming you back onto the show, perhaps to sort of catch up with us as to how things are getting on at the business. Because as I say, I think it's been fantastic having you with us and an opportunity to really learn from your experiences. Well, no, thanks for, thanks for, for asking me the questions. And, um, Yes, thank you very much, Tom. And uh, just before we do wrap up, uh, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Uh, We're not quite out of the woods yet, of course, but I think better days are ahead of us, hopefully. Likewise. Okay. It was a pleasure to welcome Tom Hainsworth, Executive Director of AW Hainsworth, onto today's programme. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Um, Here on the Leaders Council podcast, we enjoy bringing a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership to our listeners. And therefore, Lord Blunkett, our Chairman and the former Education Secretary, will be joining us next on the programme to discuss his take on the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for the weeks ahead of us. As I say, that will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. 
which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber 
attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole 
is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders ideas the ability to build a team to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice sometimes at the most difficult times and you know the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.